1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
2: When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. A project... Five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails Special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War One, Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluges. Britain goes to war. The 1916... To the Brexit. Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails... Remastered. This is the first part of When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the Spanish-American War, which originally aired as one episode on the 11th of June, 2012. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, my name is Zach Twomley. Last time we looked at a freshly redone Russo-Japanese war, and I said I was delighted to go back and raise the memory of that traumatic recording because of some poorly chosen accents. This time, my opinion regarding this war is a good deal more personal, so if you don't mind too much, I'd like to tell a brief story that puts experiences like these in context. If you looked at the description on iTunes for this episode, it said... Sorry for the delay this time, guys. Had some stuff I had to sort out this past week, or something to that effect. I tried to keep it as low-key as possible, but every time I looked at that episode since, I've found myself getting profoundly emotional. And to be honest, I've never actually listened to this episode in full. There's a good reason for this. So I'll never forget the day. It was Sunday, the 11th of June, 2012, and I'd gone to church as normal. While socialising outside in the rare Irish sun, I got a strange phone call. It was from my mom. as my parents and younger sister had gone on holiday to Spain and were meant to be returning home the following Wednesday, so in a few days' time, after already spending a few days there. I answered as normal, and then my world crashed. My dad had collapsed, and there was no real explanation as to why, and he was sitting up in bed, in Spain, in their apartment, in immense pain. The neighbours had advised calling an ambulance just in case, since it seemed like a strange thing to happen and we wanted to err on the side of caution. At the same time though, my mum was in a foreign country and she didn't really fancy the idea of visiting their hospital while on holiday, but the friendly neighbours, who happened to be from Norway, insisted. So a nearby couple, who had given their number to my parents just in case something went wrong, ended up bringing my mum and my sister while dad went in the ambulance. There was very little information at this stage, for any of us. Here I was in Ireland away from my family, my older sister was in Australia, just for the record, and everyone else was in Spain, so I told people in church the news, but I couldn't tell them very much at all. And it was strange, like it was really strange, because I knew something was wrong deep down, but there just didn't seem to be any news about what was going on. So I continued on, went to a friend's barbecue, as I originally had planned, Everyone had by now heard of Dad's episode and wanted to know what was up, but there was some kerfuffle over organising an EU health card, which Dad would need if he needed surgery for whatever had happened. So after socialising for a while longer and sorting that whole malarkey out, I went home to an empty house with nothing but my worst fears and cruel imagination to occupy me. It was then that I saw the script for the Spanish-American War just lying there at the side of my bed. See, this was the old times, where for some reason I had become used to printing out the scripts and reading them, rather than just reading them off the computer. I had finished typing up the Spanish-American War script the night before, and I planned to record it and release it on that day, so the 11th of June. I began to read through it and try and take my mind off the day's events. It was escapism at its finest, there's no denying that, and all I thought about was the Spanish-American War. How curious it was that the Americans wanted colonies after all, and all that jazz. All I knew was that Dad had collapsed and been taken to hospital. Mom had tried to keep me updated, but it had proved difficult with roaming charges, etc., so I was mostly in the dark. I started recording, and through my enforced concentration, I managed to mostly forget everything else going on around me. I was midway through recording when there was a knock at the door and I snapped back to reality. I looked through the glass of the door and I got that sick feeling you get when your heart beats fast and your stomach lurches and sinks all at the same time. I felt like I was about to be on one of those car crash ads that were on Irish TV for a while where it shows the front door and a guardy pulling up to the house and then that guarda calling on the mother's door and giving her the terrible news and then we the viewer as privileged viewers get to see that poor woman crumble in real time. The couple at the door were close friends of the family, and they had never had such grave expressions on their faces in all the years that I had known them. I really wasn't looking forward to it, but I opened the door and leaned heavily against it to stop my knees from buckling. The next part's sort of a blur, but I let them in after some small talk on awkwardness, and they asked me to sit down in the living room. My brain, funnily enough, was already breaking the worst news to me. I didn't want to cry in front of these people, so I imagined what they were about to say before they said it. That Dad had died, that he'd had a heart attack in Spain or something like that and there was nothing they could do, and that everyone would be here for me. I waited for that news for a good few minutes until I realised that they weren't here to tell me the worst news any grown-up child could possibly hear. Dad's condition was bad, they said. He'd had an aneurysm in his aorta which burst and he'd have to have open-heart surgery in Spain. The risks were grave and survival was not guaranteed, hence the grave faces. But what followed was the most unlikely reception they ever expected to get. Undoubtedly, they probably expected me to cry, perhaps even wail at the news that Dad was in such a dire condition. What they may not have realised was that I expected them to break the worst news possible, so anything better than that was going to be the best news ever. I could have jumped for joy, and I still remember their faces as they started laughing, full on laughing at the news. He's going to need open heart surgery, I asked, with what I'm sure was like the stupidest grin on my face. And the two of them looked at each other, and the guy was like, Uh, Zach, uh, it's, uh, pretty serious, so don't. And I was like, Woohoo! <laughs> It was such a weird scene, and even as I brought them to the door to say goodbye, I was all upbeat and positive, as if I'd just been told about someone's engagement or a newborn baby. Neither of them knew what to make of it, and probably became somewhat eager to make some space between themselves and this weirdo. After they left, I sat down on our couch and looked at our dog, Juby, Well, actually, his name is Scooby, but we all call him Juby because Scooby's a terrible name. He looked at me with his head to the side, with his incredible deep eyes and adorable demeanour because dogs are the best thing ever, I don't care what you say. And I remember saying to him, Dad's going to be fine, Jubi, he's going to be fine. It wasn't empty words either. Even now I still remember having this overarching feeling that everything was just going to be okay. And you'll be happy to know it was. Dad endured this gruelling surgery, but looking at him now you wouldn't even know that he'd essentially been split in half. To this day, I maintain that he was in the right place at the right time. He just so happened to be an hour from one of the best and make that newest cardiac hospitals in Europe. Had that happened to him in Ireland, I honestly don't imagine that he would have pulled through. Similarly, the doctors repeatedly told him and us, both in Spain and back home, how lucky he was to be alive. For the record, a very small window of life exists once the aneurysm bursts in the aorta Because it takes such a heap of blood away from the heart, people normally bleed out in very short time. Not only did the burst aneurysm not prove fatal, but Dad survived the aftermath too. He's still my hero. So it was that after receiving all that news, finding a way to communicate with the family in Spain and Australia, and telling Tubi all would be well... ...that I set about returning to my duties and recording the podcast. In other words, if you were to listen to episode 4... ...well, you wouldn't know it... ...that's the voice of a guy, fresh off, getting some of the worst news of his life... ...but he was in too euphoric or kind of weird a state to realise it. And it was only after I finished recording and sat with Chewy for a little while longer that... ...it all sunk in. He jumped onto the couch beside me and started to wag his tail as if... ...he knew something was wrong... I'll never forget it, and I then collapsed into a big heap of tears. The stress, the relief, the worry, the joy, the loneliness, everything had just kind of bubbled to the surface and here I was miles away from my family in a situation I'd never imagined I'd be in. So what's the point of this whole story then? Well the point is, other than Dogs Are Awesome, the podcast really helped me through this experience. It helped me put things to the side and concentrate on what I loved. I've never been able to listen to episode 4 of the podcast because, joyful though I was that everything turned out okay, it was still an awful lot to take in, and the Spanish-American War was all wrapped up in that event purely because on that day I happened to be recording it. So today I record it anew, and while it might be a difficult task for a number of reasons, i really like to thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. If this little anecdote tells you anything about Zach's life, It's that the podcast is truly ingrained within it, which means that all of you guys are ingrained in it as well. Much love, history friends. Much love. Anyway, let's dry our eyes and stop all this hugging, as I now take you to the year 1895. Well, that wasn't forced at all. War is a series of catastrophes that results in a victory. Benjamin Franklin. The American Civil War was fought from 1861 to 65, and had cost countless lives, divided the nation and families and played host to the largest battles ever seen on the American mainland. The war was a catastrophic, a seismic event in American history to the extent that, even in 1895, the United States was still healing. Americans were living in cities experiencing huge population booms, The previous rounds of immigration had seen the United States explode in population, making it one of the most populous nations in the world. It was a young country, with a great deal of unused land, particularly in the now-dying Wild West. Land was cheap, and work in the various city factories, mills and mines was relatively easy to come by. While Europe seemed content to organise itself into armed camps, America was consolidating its considerable power locally. America was demographically and productively a potential powerhouse. Industrialism had transformed the nation from a rural agricultural baby to a solid continental giant. America had all the tools, it was just waiting for a chance to use them on the world stage to prove to Europe and perhaps to itself that it really belonged at the centre of world affairs. In 1823, US President James Monroe had signed what would become known as the Monroe Doctrine, and, similar to the Truman Doctrine, which America would pass over 100 years later, this doctrine would dictate American foreign policy for years to come. The Monroe Doctrine outlined US foreign policy with respect to colonialism and imperialism within North and South America, In simple terms, it protected the sovereignty of the recently independent Latin American states, and threatened US intervention should these countries come under attack by their former colonial masters. There were some notable exemptions from this doctrine, however. These exemptions were the Spanish possessions around the Americas, which Spain still held tightly to, the small islands tucked into the Caribbean and Pacific. These islands were, in the Pacific, Guam and the Philippines, and in the Caribbean, Puerto Rico and Cuba. Of all these possessions, in 1895, Americans looked at the situation unfolding in Cuba with the greatest concern. By the end of the 19th century, Spain was a demoralised and frustrated nation. It was still suffering from its gargantuan loss of territory after the peninsular war campaign of the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon had never been able to fully bring Spain to heel, but he had disabled it to such an extent that it could no longer maintain its colonies. Latin America began throwing off the Spanish yoke shortly after the Napoleonic Wars, and while Spain recovered over the following years, its pipe dreams to one day re-exert its imperium over Latin America were crushed, or at the very least challenged, in 1823 when America tied itself to the aforementioned Monroe Doctrine. Historians tend to debate the value of the Monroe Doctrine, as they seek to assess whether it was a genuine move in a certain policy direction, or whether Monroe intended to use it as a bluff. In the early 1820s, America as we know it today was not yet formed. Millions of square miles of unoccupied land existed amidst the better settled areas of the south and southwest, but it was primarily the east coast that the former 13 colonies would expand from. The Monroe Doctrine was conveniently tied with the idea of Manifest Destiny, and any American history buffs or even enthusiasts will know all this pretty well. Manifest Destiny was the belief that Americans were destined to expand across the Americas until they reached the Pacific Ocean. An impossible dream for a time, Manifest Destiny was made far easier to realise with the arrival of the railway and the resulting shortening of distances across the states. While Queen Victoria and her beloved Albert were testing out the transport for themselves in Britain in 1842, an act which really established the train as an approved method of travel for British and Irish citizens, Americans were seeing the vast potential of rail, having laid over 9,000 miles of railway track by 1850. By this point rail was seen as a convenient transport device for men and materials ensuring that states far north would receive supplies in a timely manner from the south. They were practical, in other words, rather than for any real leisurely purposes, and American rail magnates watched their British cousins closely, and vice versa, as rail boom, bust, and further expansions convinced a growing number of American magnates of the need to lay more and more and more tracks. Backed by British and other European investors, put up the money in return for a sound investment and a guarantee that traffic would begin rolling on the tracks soon, after 1850 the next phase of rail building began, and it was from this point that manifest destiny propelled Americans to all the corners of their continent. In 1869 the first transcontinental line was laid, reaching from the tangled network of the east to California's Pacific coast. With both sides of the continent reached, was perhaps only a matter of time before the pieces in the middle were filled in. The impact of the railway, in my mind, on American history is akin to the impact of coal on Britain's Industrial Revolution. Without it, America today would look drastically different. Where this whole tangent of railways concerns us is in the fact that James Monroe did not know of the coming of rail in 1823, when the doctrine was read out, nor did he know that no other power would reach the west coast of America before his fellow Americans did. Yet, rail played into American dreams and ambitions for expansion. Manifest destiny no longer seemed like an unreachable goal when travel times could be so shortened. There was less danger of a British naval squadron landing at California and claiming the land in the name of Victoria, as London had done across the world many times over, Britain already owned the vast expanses of North American Canada. Populated by the loyalist descendants and company men from generations before, Russia, don't forget, owned Alaska until selling it to the US in 1869. The fear thus seemed a tangible one, that another power would land first or move first and remove the dream of manifest destiny before the Americans had ever been given a chance to bloom. Following the civil war and the rapid industrialism which came in the aftermath of the peace, railways became still more important for consolidating American power and materials. By the 1890s, the idea that another power could have reached California first seemed like a story from a bad alternative history novel. The United States was secure, it was definitively present in the total expanse of the continent, there was no denying it. So much space existed in these underdeveloped states for future generations, so many materials waited to be tapped and so many opportunities waited to be discovered. To US President William McKinley though, even greater opportunities seemed to be presenting themselves abroad. It was all very well to expand domestically and establish the United States in the four corners of its continent, but far better and more notable an act it would surely be to strive outside of these borders and establish American connections in new spheres. McKinley and his political allies had come to see the acquisition of colonies as America's new manifest destiny. Facing down these ambitions was the shell of an empire that was Spain. For centuries, Spanish money and materials had flowed across the world, and for a time Spain was the world power amongst a sea of great powers.
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
2: And if you've been listening to the back catalogue of my podcast, this is also familiar to you. But as of course we know, the party couldn't last. Spain's decline came fast and sharp in the course of a war with France in the mid-17th century, by which time Spain had become accustomed to a level of corruption and illicit behaviour which had slowly engendered a culture of waste and slowness in the Castilian monarchy, and costed its economic and military prowess, which had once been the envy of the world. Other powers, of course, stepped up to claim its old mantle, mostly at Spain's expense, and when its last Habsburg monarch died in seventeen hundred, a war for the throne of Spain began soon after. This was Game of Thrones' old style, as Louis XIV of France waged his last great war, eventually outlasting the patience of his foes and placing a Bourbon on the throne. In the years that followed, Spain remained an important facet of European relations, though its star had definitively dimmed. By the time of the Napoleonic Wars, Spain's crown jewel in Latin America was even beginning to dull, and indeed Madrid could not stop its Latin possessions breaking away in the 1810s and 20s, while it endured an occupation from the French. Spanish power limped on, and Madrid maintained control over some of its older possessions in Asia and the Caribbean, but its rule there was constantly beset with problems. The sluggish, inefficient and corrupt rule of Spain contrasted cruelly with the burgeoning, energetic and youthful power of America, and indeed the Monroe Doctrine had been viewed as a direct attack on Spanish interests when it was learned of in 1823. By that time, Spain couldn't get any European powers to join in its war against Washington, but the whole experience seemed like just one slight after another, as Spain sought to plug the ever-present holes in its regime. One of these constantly recurring holes much to Washington's delight, seemed to be Cuba. Cuba had been an element of Spain since Columbus first laid claim to it in 1492. Since then it had evolved from a slaver's plantation to a prosperous and important Spanish territory. Cuba was seen as a province of Spain, not just a colony. It was a colony only because of the ocean in the way, and many Spanish at home considered it part of Spain that could not be removed. It was a part of the Spanish consciousness. They had always had Cuba. Why then was Cuba lately so troublesome? The United States had tried even before the Civil War to bring Cuba into the American sphere of influence. They had tried to purchase it as a slave colony, while other US governments had emphasized Cuba's proximity to the United States and believed that by default the United States should be controlling Cuba. Some Cuban rebels believed that their future would be brighter under the protection of the US, while others demanded full independence. The first of three wars for Cuban independence began on the 10th of October 1868, when sugar mill owner Carlos Manuel de Céspedes and his followers proclaimed Cuban independence from Spain. This was a great international embarrassment for Madrid as well as a logistical and economic problem, as its so-called home colony erupted in revolt. That war lasted 10 bitter and brutal years. A smaller war then broke out in 1879 and lasted only one year. Then in 1895, the third, final and most devastating war in Cuba broke out. Jose Marti, a long-time advocate of Cuban autonomy, led a small guerrilla force into Cuba from nearby Florida and proclaimed Cuban sovereignty. As the war raged, Atrocities inevitably occurred. The Cuban rebels were massively outnumbered. In 1897, Spain moved thousands of crack troops into Cuba to put down the rebellion and secure the island. So while Spain fought on, it was also being watched by more and more Americans, Americans who identified with the Cuban struggle. The Cubans were seen as nationalists fighting their colonial masters, and it had only been a century before that Americans had faced the exact same situation. Unlike the American War of Independence, though, the revolt in Cuba was not viewed internationally as an event of much importance, except by America, that is. The aim of the Cuban rebels was to make it unprofitable for Spain to hold on to Cuba, so they made with the destruction of the plantations which had put Cuba on the map. Seeing this, Spanish officials decided that the best course of action would be to increase the measures used to suppress the rebels. Madrid needed to assign someone the task of putting down the rebellion, and they landed on a career soldier by the name of Valeriano Weyler y Niccolo. Weyler was a hardline, piously Catholic and no-nonsense man, and he took the old Spanish-appointed Cuban governor's place as general of the island, and from here, with emergency measures and martial law in place, things began to go downhill. Whaler was important because he can be credited with the advent of the concentration camp in the modern era, a creation that many nations would infamously utilise over the following century. Wehler sent a memo around Cuba when he had taken command, and this was picked up by American observers and brought back home. Whaler had said, I order and command that all the inhabitants of the country, or outside of the line of fortifications of the towns, shall... Within the period of eight days, concentrate themselves in the town so occupied by the troops. Any individual who, after the expiration of this period, is found in the uninhabited parts, will be considered a rebel, and tried as such. Seeing its first use in this campaign, the concentration camp meant the end for Cuban rebels and citizens alike, as many were herded into their confines and left to die. The situation reached American politicians who passed it on to the press, who informed the public. The results were immediate. The American public clamoured for a response to aid the brave little Cubans, and an atmosphere of anti-Spanish feeling began to spread, not just among the public, but also through the newspapers. Yellow journalism, as it became known, was the process of creating sensationalist headlines and articles without providing adequate or accurate statistics along with those articles. Such journalism always works best when it addresses a topic on everyone's minds and when it tells you what you want to hear. Yellow journalism was most effective within New York because the New York newspapers were the most experienced at using yellow journalism. The American public did demand concrete action, however, and various camps within America began to emerge as the route to take regarding Cuba divided opinion. All Americans believed something should be done, but some believed that it should be a negotiated solution. In terms of military intervention on behalf of Cuba, Americans were split again into two broad camps. The first wanted military intervention and for the United States to support Cuban moves for independence, The second wanted the same as the first, except that they wanted Cuba to become, not independent, but a colony of America. There was then a further camp that wanted colonies, but did not want the complication of war. So even from that brief summary, you can see the complications involved with intervening in Cuba. The US government was not just looking at Cuba, however, but at Spain's Pacific possessions too. If the government could not gain the necessary support for making a colony out of Cuba, then a nice consolation prize would surely be the Philippines and Guam in the Pacific. Both these territories would expand American influence into the Far East, a move which many American politicians saw as desirable. Though that's not to say that all in the American government wanted colonies. The arguments for and against colonies basically went like this. In Arguments for, colonies are how a nation shows off its greatness, so why shouldn't we show off ours by getting some? and arguments against, don't you remember what it was like to be a colony and how could we do that to the subject peoples? President McKinley knew that it was his responsibility to the American people to find a solution to the Cuban crisis that they could all agree on. McKinley would later be described by his secretary as the first genius of manipulation, so you can probably guess where all of this ends up. Either way, McKinley was going to need those sneaky traits if he was going to find a solution that would unite the American public, its press, its military, its politicians, and its businesses behind him. Even without the full desire for war, plans had been made should war break out between Spain and America. These plans involved moving the American Navy, which, thanks to numerous construction bills in the 1890s, was now a modern, sizable force, and moving this navy to various areas around the world wouldn't be that difficult. The American fleets were meant to be able to attack as soon as war had broken out, and they were meant to attack Spain's colonies. While America was making these plans, though, a strange thing happened. Spain was agreeing to its demands. This was because the hardline Spanish Prime Minister, Canovas de Castillo, the same man who in 1896 had announced that The Spanish nation is disposed to sacrifice the last of its treasure and the last drop of blood of the last Spaniard before consenting that anyone snatch from it even one piece of its territory. Well, he had been assassinated and replaced, so obviously that didn't go very well for him. His replacement, though, Praxedes Sagasta, was both an open advocate of Cuban autonomy and a sensible negotiator to boot. McKinley had sent his diplomat, Stuart L. Woodford to Madrid in mid-1897 to draw up plans on the future of Cuba. Sagasta agreed to the disappointment of advocates of war in America and to the relief of those who disapproved of it, and the result was that Cuba was set to become an independent country on the 1st of January, 1898. So how did the war happen? Cuba would be free, America wouldn't have to worry about Cubans sitting in concentration camps, and money that would have been spent on war can be spent on something else. Everybody wins, right? Well, actually, no. You see, there was a small Spanish Loyalist population in Cuba, so 11 days after Cuban independence was proclaimed, they started a small anti-American riot. According to the terms agreed to by McKinley, The Spanish were supposed to be gone from the island by then, so why were loyalists starting riots now, and doesn't this violate the treaty guaranteeing Cuban independence, which they just signed? Upon hearing of the riot, McKinley decided to test the nerve of the Spanish by sending a US battleship, the USS Maine, to Havana Harbour in Cuba, for the public purpose of protecting the US citizens in Cuba, of course. Fortunately for McKinley's political ambitions, and unfortunately for those men on board, that same battleship sank under mysterious circumstances just within reach of the Spanish coastal defences. McKinley had been told what would happen if he sent a ship to Cuba and he knew full well that he was playing with fire. The historian Walter Carp wrote that, After warning the Spanish ambassador that an anti-American outburst in Cuba would compel him to send troops, the president urged the USS Maine to provoke an anti-American outburst. But well, was this all McKinley playing with fire and being the master manipulator as his secretary claimed? The evidence would suggest that at the very least the president had a large role in what followed. In the weeks leading up to the sinking of the main, McKinley had attended numerous conferences and discussed at length the prospect of war with Spain for any purpose. This is where Theodore Roosevelt comes onto the scene. Roosevelt was an avid supporter of both war and colonies. He had said in an address to the Naval War College in 1897 that, All the great masterful races of the world have been fighting races. No triumph of peace is quite as great as the supreme triumphs of war. McKinley was on Roosevelt's side. He wanted war in colonies too, and this became obvious in a letter that he sent to Roosevelt later that year, when he wrote, While we are conducting war and until its conclusion we must keep all we get, but when it is over we must keep what we want. But McKinley was thinking tactically too. Don't forget war with Spain meant not just Cuba as a potential prize, but also the Philippines. Why were the Philippines so important you may ask? Because they would give the United States its first real refueling base in the Pacific from which it could then expand into the rest of the Pacific increasing American influence worldwide in the process. This is why the US war plans centred on hitting Spain in the Pacific and Caribbean. The US wanted those territories. Cuba was the excuse, while the seizure of the Philippines and Guam could be Spain's punishment for acting so counter to their upright, moral principles. The sinking of the Maine on the 12th of February 1898 would have certainly made the cries for US action louder, And McKinley now began asking for further concessions from Spain. In fairness to the Americans, by spring 1898 it was becoming obvious that, despite what agreements Woodford and Sagasta had signed, Spain was in no apparent hurry to abandon Cuba to its own affairs. On the other hand, in Europe there was little support for American demands. Many nations in Europe would have supported Spain at least in spirit. Britain was a friend of America by default, since it regarded America as its cousin, who, despite possessing the embarrassing tendency to punch above their weight when it came to international diplomacy, they would stand by America should the war become a serious or even worldwide affair. Of that fact, American strategists were hopeful, although recent border disputes in Venezuela, and bombastic diplomacy by those sides in the early 1890s, almost sparked an Anglo-American war. France was a more complicated issue, Its press was vehemently anti-American, sympathising with Spanish interests and always questioning the validity of the Monroe Doctrine, which America seemed to be following. The French public saw the problems in Cuba, however, and believed that, if the United States was in fact acting to acquire Cuba's independence for Cubans, and not for itself, then its cause was a just one. Louis Martin Sears, in his article, French Opinion on the Spanish-American War, noted that the aforementioned Monroe Doctrine was viewed by many in Europe as a menace, in varying degrees, to all European powers holding colonies in America. Louis continued to claim that within France, admiration was joined with sympathy for Spain, whose dignity and calm so happily contrasted with the agitation and aggression in America. Germany's opinion was also worth considering, though German-American diplomacy was at a cool phase at this point, owing to tensions in Samoa, of all places, and an undeniable level of arrogance and condescending accents on both sides. By spring 1898, McKinley was angling for some kind of military action, a way to gain Spanish territory without much international attention. His advisers told him that the rest of the world was not in a position to act against America, provided the war did not drag on for too long. McKinley, of course, didn't want a long war either, but there was a complication. The largest pro-war group in America were those that wanted Cuba to be liberated, not taken over and incorporated as an American colony. Upon hearing this, President McKinley changed his policies to the liberation of Cuba, and focused instead on the annexation of the Philippines on the down low. With American foreign policy relatively more clear and possessing a solution which he hoped would satisfy all the groups in his country, McKinley's talk became more aggressive. A bill was drawn up and placed before Congress. The Teller Amendment, as it became known, made official the angle of the United States with regard to Cuba. It claimed that, while it would intervene, it would not exercise... Sovereignty, jurisdiction, or control over Cuba. Notice how it conveniently didn't mention Guam, Puerto Rico, or the Philippines. That's mostly because the American public didn't care as much for them, bombarded as they had been with images and news of the wretched Cubans, while McKinley's advisors recognized that the United States were going to the Philippines and Guam for imperial rather than selfless reasons. So on the 19th of April 1898, this Teller Amendment made its way into the United States' Intervention Bill, making the US policy official not just at home, but also around the world. This bill was sent to Madrid, demanding the complete evacuation from Cuba within three days, the closure of all concentration camps, and the demand that Spain must accept US mediation on the conflict. Of course, Spain could not accept such a blatant disrespecting of their sovereignty, To bow to American demands would have been a slap in the face of Spanish prestige. McKinley was depending on this fact. His ships were ready to sail because of this fact. Spain broke off diplomatic relations with America on the 20th of April, 1898, and McKinley ordered his fleets to sail to the Pacific and Caribbean theatres. The American ships blockaded the Havana Harbour in Cuba, forcing Spain to finally, albeit reluctantly, Declare war on the United States on the 23rd of April. The King of Spain at this time, Alfonso Thirteenth, was merely 12 years old, so his mother, Maria Cristina, was his regent and in effective control of Spain. Upon seeing the situation degenerate into war, Cristina declared defiantly on the 22nd of April, I have summoned the Cortes to defend our rights, whatever sacrifice they may entail. Thus identifying myself with the nation, I not only fulfill the oath I swore in accepting the regency, but I follow the dictates of a mother's heart, trusting to the Spanish people to gather behind my son's throne and to defend it until he is old enough to defend it himself, as well as trusting to the Spanish people to defend the honour and the territory of the nation. Unfortunately for this young king and his bankrupt nation, the Spanish tragedy had only just begun. American ships had set sail and they were aimed at the heart of the old world's greatest empire.